it's been a while, but we are back with a new episode of Expanding Horizons. As usual, I'm your host, LB. Joining me is CT. Good evening, folks. So, we are back with Expanding Horizons. This is my favorite podcast that we do, so I'm always really thrilled when we're able to get a new episode out. The subjects for this episode are going to be the, I want to say, 2003 series from Gonzo, which is Last Exile, and then a series from later in the decade from Studio Bones or on High School Host Club. As usual, it should be noted that we're going to be talking about these series in depth, so there will be spoilers along the way, so be warned about that. Uh, we're going to go ahead, we're going to start with Last Exile, which was the series that was recommended to me. Normally, I would start things off by explaining, you know, <laughs> what the series was about, what the story was, but honestly, this series was such an incomprehensible mess to me that I don't even know where to begin with the story. <laughs> Okay, that's uh, auspicious beginnings. Yeah, okay, so to be totally I... fair, the mm -hmm. first four episodes or so were fine. The pacing was good, the story, they told the beginnings of the story, though I did get confused on episode three because the first two minutes are frame for frame exactly the same mm. as episode one i actually thought that the streaming service i thought that funimation had screwed up and was showing me episode one again so that confused me for a good couple of days until Certainly i pushed put it past them yeah uh but uh so the basic story is that this is a world where people do fly-by delivery services. They have their own private little small, the, for lack of a better word, airplanes, but they're not really airplanes. They're something else. Uh, and they do their own little delivery services. They deliver messages and packages. They go all over. Uh, the jobs are graded to, so that they pilots know how dangerous they are. Uh, and then after the first few episodes, the two main characters, who are two young kids who lost their fathers to this delivery industry, uh, they do a big delivery to a big warship and somehow along the way get totally caught up in this big war between the one faction and another faction called the Guild. And honestly, from that point forward, I did not know what was happening. I was so lost So for most of the series. In, in fact, from that very beginning, it shows just where some of the disconnect is, since it's... Uh... You know they are, they are from the one uh, uh, Terre kingdom, and they're fighting against Deceith, and the guild is overseeing. So it's not technically a war against the guild faction, uh, because you have those two sides that are largely warring against each other with guild oversight. But then it turns into trying to, you know, 
eventually overpower the guild because they are the uh the 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 evil snotty technocratic uh overlords of the uh of the weird world in in which they all occupy so uh okay how... that helps a little bit but <laughs> yeah well, we'll, we'll i was still... i'm i'm curious to find out cuz i know i know a bit and i think i know probably some that the that wasn't clear in the anime. So it might almost be more interesting to go find out where the, uh, where, where all of the disconnects were lying. But what did, what did you know about this? You know, we'll start with the usual. What did you know about this before going in? What did you possibly expect from it? Uh, either from reputation or from our brief conversation before you picked it up. Uh, I knew very little about this series. I went into this series almost 100% blind. I knew vaguely that it had a generally positive reputation in the community. Uh, I remember mentioning on Twitter that we were going to be doing this series and I was going to be watching it. And a couple of people chimed in with, you know, that one chimed in with, okay, yeah, I like that series. And then another person chimed in with, I don't remember anything about that series, <laughs> which and, uh, was kind of ominous. Yes. And I think another with uh, abject hatred of it. So it, it might be somewhat divisive, but I, I think a lot of that will just come down to what kind of series you enjoy in general. Like how me and Battle Shonen tend to not get along too well, so I kind of don't care about a huge swath of community stuff. This feels very much, you know, like your war drama. It just has the different vehicle for it. So it's a, it's very much a gunship, just kind of steampunk, diesel punk with airships instead of doing your, your mecha thing or your space opera thing. Now, here's a question, because this, uh, this whole suggestion came to you through a weird process, because if you recall a couple horizons ago, uh, <laughs> when, uh, when I was Mardok scrambling, I was looking for things that fit, you know, that Mardok Scramble was cyberpunk and I was looking for cyberpunk things. I was looking for stuff and I kept finding, this was where we ran into the, uh, the problem of, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, I was trying to find something specifically non-licensed. Yeah. And I kept running into things. I'm like, oh, that would be fitting. And I'm like, oh, damn it. Someone licensed it. Oh, maybe I'll try that thing. That's just good. And then, ah, frickin' high dive. Where did you pick <laughs> this up from all of a sudden? So La Last Exile is something that I never watched all the way through. It just came about as part of that whole process. So when we moved on to the next thing, I was like, well, here were the last things I suggested for you. And Last Exile was in there because it was what I was trying to recommend at an earlier stage. So I never watched all of it either. I just watched some of it uh, enough to get a, a feeling and know what it was uh, about. So technically I was also horizoning myself here, kind of like I did on, uh, on our original lost cast with ping pong, but uh, uh -huh. 
So I think I'd gone about, you know, half a dozen of them in. I'm like, well, I, I like the feel of it at the very least. Uh, and yeah, it feels kind of like your, your tropey uh, war conflict. The, the people trying to... Uh, uh, what is it? The, the people trying to live a simple life and pursue simple pleasures always get caught up into the big nasty wars going on in the in the world and uh and uh you know they they have their hero's journey their call to adventure so it's it's a very trope filled series to be sure it's it's not treading unique ground although one could argue that you know the worldscape itself is i know in the in the beginning, you were concerned because of the sci-fi-ness of it. And I'm like, I, I, it feels more like a just a straight-up war thing to me, and I think you could extrapolate a lot of it. And uh, how, how would you describe the world? Uh, I definitely wouldn't describe it as sci-fi any longer. I went with that originally because that's how Funimation has it tagged. Um but it's definitely felt more steam diesel punk uh kind of thing uh so i can totally see where those tags come into more how those would be more better attached to this series uh so yeah definitely i'd describe it more steam you know diesel punk kind of thing um kind of not really dystopian, but I can sort of get the vibe as well a little bit. It's a bit Hunger Gamesy, but uh, yeah. they, at the very least, it feels like it's on the edge of uh, uh, of an apocalypse of some sort as you start getting in when you learn more about the world. Uh-huh. But, uh yeah the the way the way that I sort of picked it up and thought it was interesting and appealing was just because it has a very medieval feel to it uh, and a European, you know, kind of medieval European feel to the cultures, the the castles and the villages. Obviously not because you get sort of the city, you know, certain cityscapes, but it feels kind of like other than the airships and the, uh, what, the Claudia makes happen it feels you know very much sub a particular level but you get a a very much a world war ii feel out of it because you get a lot of battleship combat with fighter aircraft uh not to mention sort of vaguely submarine stuff and uh, acoustics and sonar coming in here and there uh as they maneuver but with a weird revolutionary war feel to me because you have these musketeers who are baked into the sides of the battleships as well it's not all guns they'll open a bay and a whole bunch of just random air musket pelleters shoot each other to death (laughs) i actually have in my notes i actually do have that I thought that it was weird how the soldiers were fighting were revolutionary art, honor, and tactics, and I didn't mean that as a compliment. Right. So it's it's making, you know, the, you can always 
tear apart any particular world as to being pretty goofy, but th this is just sort of establishing the strange feel of it. And uh, I found it had a, an approach to a number of eras at the same time that was definite. That itself was probably the more unique mashing of everything together. Uh, though obviously the effect that it will ultimately have on on the viewer at the end uh, may be uh, not so appealing. And of course, I guess the other calling card of this is the uh, mad amounts of uh, CG, especially for all the Von ship use. Yeah, it was definitely quite full of that early, you know, turn of the century style of animation and you wonder it was 2003 so you wonder how much of it was affected by uh phantom menace and pod racing because the van ships do to me feel very much inspired in a way that uh pod racers might have done rather than what you'd usually think from some kind of flight aircraft uh, obviously, they have the strange technology that fuels all of them, and you get very much a corrugated steel World War II feel to the technology of it, but uh, but the design uh, uh, generally. They're, they're still making prop noises. I always love those when you get the... <laughs> when they're diving and they're making a propeller scream to it. Yeah. I'm like, I don't think your engine does that. But uh, especially with the with the CG approach in in general, it kind of felt like they were uh, they were taking cues from uh, from Phantom Menace and being like, well, what can what can we do here? Because this was it wasn't based on anything; it was an anime original. So it was, yeah. if I recall, it was celebrating Gonzo's tenth anniversary. So they put together something and they brought, I believe, a crew together. Uh, the director previously with Gonzo had done Blue Submarine Number 6, which I remember at the time being notable for the CG, for for being like one of the first heavy, uh, uh, you know, use of CG in anything anime. Mm -hmm. If I recall, that was 97 or 98. I don't remember the exact year for that one, but... Uh, so it feels like they're they were instead of adapting something, let's make a world, and they let the the director and their writers just go kind of crazy and do another war thing. I mean, Blue Submarine, they were they were doing submarine shenanigans and battleship shenanigans there. So it it feels like an extrapolation to be like let's let's make a funky sci-fi world and uh, and then show off our our CG skills to whatever extent you succeed. I, I find it generally very painful still. I've described my, uh, <laughs> my reaction to uh, CG in almost all circumstances. And this, this is real creaky, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you were, that you had only watched a little bit of the series beforehand before you recommended it to me. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, it seems as though, did you go back and did you finish it all for this cast or did you still, you did? Yeah, no, I, w I watched all of it and 
in fact, because uh, due to timing, I kind of uh, uh, marathoned the second core uh, altogether. So you you did the end of it just to get it over and done with. And I'm like, well, technically, I have to get it over and done with, too. And uh, I went through, like, episode 14 to the end in, uh, in one stretch. So oh. that was that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, alright, uh, what was... It sounds as though you had a much more positive opinion about the series overall than I ended up having. Is that pretty well accurate? I think so. I mean, like I said, it, it's not going to bring you a bunch of surprises, but I'm fine with kind of the war conflicty things and seeing what people's takes on them are. I'm not a big mecha head, so I don't get this through Gundam so much, but I enjoy a number of the other ones where you're going into, you know, large scale tactical combat and, you know, short uh, character dramas and X, Y, Z, and then, you know, who's bringing it in here. So some of this felt a, a bit uh, Escaflone-ish, which, uh, which makes me wonder, because you seem to be having a fairly negative overall uh, impression here, and, and Escaflone you didn't even finish. So what what brought you through the end of Last Exile instead of abandoning it at some point? Did you... Did you simply want answers and Escaflona didn't need answers that just needed resolution? Honestly, I think the day that I finished this series off, it was, if I recall correctly, shortly after something happened with my job. And I was just so annoyed and angry <laughs> and depressed and that I just hate-watched my way through the last seven or eight episodes. I think that's, if I recall correctly, how I got through this series, is just because <laughs> I was filled with so much loathing for the world and everything in it that I just turned this on and binged through the last seven or eight episodes. Okay. So, what what then it sounds like you got all of your uh what is it your uh, uh experiences with uh, maestro delphine Eraclea all uh, in a row then so what was your uh what what was your opinion of this very subtle and uh well crafted antagonist uh, that was not simply a, a cackling evil. <laughs> <laughs> I, by this point in the series, had was still so lost that it was just a matter of, okay, fine, let's bring in a new person and have them be the big bad evil guy and, you know, be the orchestrator among everything and unveil their big plan and, you know, try to kill the very cool, very calculating captain 
you know. So I just went along with it. I was actually more interested in the story about the soldier named Mullen. Uh, that was actually more my, I was paying attention to that, though I have to admit that as soon as he made that deal with the female soldier, it was like, oh, okay, well, he's going to die. Okay, that's interesting, because when you finished, that's one of those things that comes in at the end, when you finish the series, is Mullen dead or not dead? Oh, he's dead. So you weren't really watching the afterword very well. I guess not, but... Because I, look, I looked at that, and I'm like, what the hell? Well, I when the, you know, when everyone, uh, when the whole deal with Exile happens, and they all go away uh, and, and have their fun life without war at the end, uh, what is it? I see Dunya, and I see obvious Dunya's kids, and I see her smiling at someone, and I'm like, but who the hell is that? That looks like Mullen. <laughs> yeah, I... Was there any were... indication previously that he didn't die in that encounter? There are 50 death flags in there. <laughs> she comes out and cries. I'd occasionally, you know, it was late at night when I ultimately finished it, so it's possible that I, uh, uh, you know, blanked on a part of it, but I had no idea that Mullen was not dead at the end. But I'm pretty sure he's not dead at the end. <laughs> yeah, I was fairly cer I was fairly convinced that he was, you know, dead and shot up and, yeah, was not coming out of that. I, and I was encouraged by that because I like the war things to actually have a little bit of, uh, you know, fatality to them. Uh -huh. Not not a Kamega kill levels of uh, let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> but still, it, it drove me a little nuts that we had these conflicts at the end with so much ship explosion and other things. And I'm sitting here at the end I'm like, oh my God, how did... How did, uh, what's it, how did Vincent not die from that? How did these other people not die from that? How is Mullen in the damn afterward? Also, where did Dunya come from? But let, let's roll back a, a bit, because this okay. is, I think if we're going to have one solid, I mean, obviously you can hate or like the world as much as you're going to, whether you think it's it's goofy or not, that... That's kind of the way you get with a whole bunch of uh, things, like in in Star Wars, where every world has one climate, uh, <laughs> or uh, or other places. It's like this world is ridiculous, but it's just like, well, this is your setting, so fucking deal with it. There are vampires here, deal with it. Uh, <laughs> so what the the Silvana, the special. The special ship that, uh, you know, we, we spend much of our time with and get to know the crew. And I did appreciate that we had a fairly extensive crew that we could uh, get into. And you saw a lot of different parts of the, of the ship and you weren't just, you know, locked to the bridge the whole time. Because uh, you had characters going in and out. But uh, Alex Rose ship Silvana, what was it specifically that made it special? And uh, 
do do you know why? Because <laughs> I'm trying to see if this was peaceable from the context, and and maybe you were due to certain hate and confusion watching, you weren't pulling elements together. But I'm like it it does make sense, but I don't think it was conveyed properly. I don't I don't recall whether or not they gave you enough onboard information to pull all of this stuff together. Um, as far as I'm aware, the specialness of the ship was pretty much limited to the fact that the captain was one who delivered the news of their father's dying way back in the day, and then he went off and he became a captain of a ship somehow. Um, that was the big significance that I took away from that. Um... I also took away the fact that they had a member of the royal family working on the ship, or something like that, I want to say. Well, uh, Sophia, which, Sophia was there, sure. And that, yeah. That, that's just sort of identifying main characters. The, uh, the, the reason that it could operate the way that it did... And later the Urbanus ones, the the other specialty ships that uh, Vincent and the others did. The guild's power is kind of automatic over here, and this this feels a little bit like um, kind of Foundationy, which is a sci-fi series from Isaac Asimov, classic sci-fi but uh, they seem to occupy a position that the Foundation did where they controlled the technology. In this case, the Guild didn't share their technology, but they did... Uh, they effectively had like a, a, a Claudia engine backbone that powered... That's what made the battleships work. The, the Von ships, the fighters, had their own, you know, micro-engines, but the only way for the the big battleships to fly and fight and do anything were effectively these big engine cores. Uh, that's why Alex, at one point, uh, when, when Dio comes on board, he wants him to meet his engineer down there and see what they make and, and think of the engine there. He's, they're talking specifically about the engine. Uh, the guild supplies the engineers and the technology, and they re can recall it at any point. So that's where you get those strange scenes at the end, where it's like, oh, the Disith is using this battleship to help people over here. Well, screw that. Let's just make it crash. And the guild recalls their engine core, and it collapses the rest of the battleship. They can literally control the conflict out there, uh, and that's why they're the arbiters of how it happens. That's, in fact, where you get these revolutionary kind of like things. They're, they're supposed to confront each other in an honorable fashion. You see really early, you know, the, this ambush that comes from over here. What's going on? Why is this happening? It's outside the normal scope. And it's where the guild isn't arbitrating the way it normally would. But the, the reason that the Silvana is special is because they have a stolen core and their engineer is one of the uh, exiled, as it were, uh, <laughs> guild families. 
and he's the one that lets them keep running and the guild therefore doesn't have control over their technology. So they have a self-contained guild-powered engine. And when you get those weird-looking ships with the chainsaw arms later, that's uh, Anna Teray having finally developed the ability to have flight-capable battleships that, again, don't depend on guild technology, so those can't be uh, there. So, so when you get sometimes these confrontations where only the Silvana and their Banas can do things... It's not because all of the main characters are there, but of course, <laughs> that that's an important thing. It's literally because the guild can't control their ships. But I'm trying to see how much of that ever came, uh, was peaceable out. The uh, Alvis and the, uh, all of the Mysteria and other stuff... Uh, there, there were, you know, four guild factions uh, uh, that happened, and uh, Delphines basically triumphed over a conflict and got rid of the rest of the families. That's why you have Alvis, and you have the engineer board, the Sylvanus, and the scattered few who are doing other things, but they're not a part of what would be considered the guild. They are... They are guilders because they were part of those families and bloodlines, but they're they're not in power. That's why they're wandering around, and uh, you see them in certain places. the The prime minister, the emperor's prime minister, uh, Bassianus, is you know one of those as well. So he was helping politically. Lesius, the engineer aboard the uh, Silvana, was. Uh, was helping Alex specifically, and then uh, the the little girl Alvis was trying to be hidden because she was the key to controlling exile. There, the super magic ship technology. Now we do get told exactly what it is at some point, but uh, but how how much of you know, after after we get to the point where Delphine is revealing what exile actually is, and why uh, Alvis is is important to to controlling it, or what you know what it wants to do. She wants to rule the world. Alex wants to use it to uh, to destroy the guild and destroy it because it's a threat. But uh, then it's revealed that it's a, uh, a colony ship. So we're we're not on Earth or a weird thing. We're we're in fact in a space colony, which which ties together Gundam things again. You have enough sci-fi elements in here that I feel like you know, even though a bunch of it is ridiculous, like the hourglass nature of uh, <laughs> of what they're officially uh, uh, discovered to be in the end. Uh, what happens in the end uh it's it's a little ridiculous but you know so is halo and things like that it's it's kind of that foundation of okay we're not we're not on earth we're out in space this is a colony uh it's not an earth that just had diesel tech flight technology introduced at at a point in time and this is what happened it's like okay, we're we're off in another planet, and we have a bifurcated world that uh, 
was improperly terraformed and that's why the hot side is hot and the cold side is cold because <laughs> you have the uh dc is going into an ice age and uh anna Teray is basically going into a uh, uh, uh too many drought conditions that's why water is so precious over there there's there's lots of seeds to it of interesting stuff but how much can you actually piece together by watching the show? And I think that's the biggest frustration with it, is they show you a bunch of stuff, but you kind of don't have enough to understand what's going on. And it's not just a, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, there's a weird-ass ending. It's, uh, <laughs> they, they introduce things all along. I just don't think it it goes there i'm wondering how much of it is literally expositioned in the the second series and that lets people understand better what actually the fuck was going on in the first series. <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't watch the second season i didn't even glance at it i got through the first you know, 26 episodes and was and called it good at that point. I, like I said, I tried to understand this series, but by the end of it, things were just flying over my head left and right uh, that I was kind of being able to piece together little bits here and there. But even the big reveals were having very little effect on me like in episode i want to say 17 18 somewhere in that range when the kids realize that the big fight in the sky is a good chunk their fault for something that they did early on in the series and they start crying i knew that i was supposed to feel something at that point but I honestly just so did not care. They were hoping you would feel something. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and that does, you know, get to it. A, a lot of times if you're following these kinds of shows, whether it's Altair, uh, or Alderamid on the Sky, or, uh, Legend of Galactic Heroes, you always have these, uh, things, and it's like, here's the political things, here's the okay, we're all going to fight over here, and here's why it's important. You kind of need to simply appreciate the mechanics more than whether or not it makes a whole lot of sense. But that's, uh, that's kind of the way a lot of combat stuff works as well, because you always have this these uh, fights that are dramatic confrontations between people, and then someone just pulls something unknown out of their ass. And... Uh, it goes back to a, a like a power a power level reversal or a confrontation stalemate, and then everyone goes back into their corners to go fight somewhere else later. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in this, it it's I think it's almost an aesthetic thing, both the world and if you're invested enough into learning about the technology and the the sci-fi trappings of it. So, for instance, do, do you realize that, you know, the the bunch of them, after Alvis says her key 
phrases at the end and activates exile, which eliminates the grand stream and makes it so that uh, their uh, deceased colony can operate with a normal weather pattern and you know they don't have to fight over resources they don't have to invade each other because they're uh, they're being you know uh, uh, stifled by the world itself and the guild isn't just a power seeking uh, uh, they they stopped guiding they instead became about you know power seeking and being able to live above it all literally uh, <laughs> so they get a normal functional world. And you, you think that's where, you know, Klaus and Lavi and the others are going to and will live peacefully the rest of their life. But apparently they were all aboard that ship and it flew off into space. They went back to Earth. And that afterward that they're seeing is them on Earth. <laughs> well, okay. Did you have any inkling? <laughs> that's what I mean. I'm like, I feel like it's events in the second one and i doubt i'm gonna watch uh silver fam either but for different reasons but i feel almost like extrapol uh exposition after the show lets you figure out what happened in the show and i'm like that's a weird way to handle it <laughs> i didn't understand where people came from where did uh where did Holly Madfane just pop into the alien ship from to go fly off into alien land? If, uh, if, if everyone was given the option of, there were three people or, and you know, some crash ships on the exile when it took off and started doing space things. It seemed like it was doing it right away. So honestly, you only had people in the war who could have been there. But in the end, you see a bunch of people who used it to to go back, and it's like the somehow the undead Mullen <laughs> and Dunya showed up, even though they were nowhere near uh, the area. And you had uh, Tatiana and Alistair show up, and uh, but why didn't you have lots of people? If it was waiting long enough to have lots of people able to come on board, why didn't a whole lot more people go? And if there was no time, how were there any other people? I'm like, it was kind of a weird afterward, because we're seeing, you know, Sophia burying uh, Alexander and doing other stuff, so it, it feels like there's a lot of time that gets spent, but if the exile is going to another land and people are wanting to go there, why on earth did it leave with, like, eight people? <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to all of them i kind of assumed it just took off into space and you know they were allowed to go back home and everyone lived on their now peaceful uh colony world because they don't have to fight over everything anymore now maybe that's what we're supposed to believe and it's just uh, uh from the silver wing which retroactively re-describes everything for it but uh it's it, it's real weird it's real weird so uh what what parts did you either actually enjoy or most enjoy then either character wise or moment wise or uh or, or which ones character wise uh you know in the end were most disappointing to you uh i definitely have to say that the episode towards the middle of the series where they focus on the past 
of the two main characters, Lobby and what's his name? Klaus. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed that episode where they focus on their past and their upbringing and them learning how to fly and having to sell the house in order to keep the plane. And I thought that was a really fun episode. It broke things up really well. So that was probably my favorite. And that was, that I thought was interesting to get because it's sort of after Klaus and Titania have their crash landing and then Lobby's starting to get jealous. So we're, we're seeing rifts and drama in the character relationships. And uh, then we get to see what, you know, brought them together and kept them together and what they, what they effectively fought through. Uh-huh. Their dad's massive, massive death flag. <laughs> that, that was one thing I really didn't like because that—that's an annoying trope in general. But uh, when Nestor, uh, or not Nestor, when uh, Georges and Hamilcar go try to fly the uh, what is it, the uh, the Grand Stream, which keeps making me think of you know One Piece. But uh, <laughs> when they go try to deliver the the peace message to Disif ten years prior. Uh, and uh, disappear, you you get like a, a coda afterwards for Klaus's mother, who's like, ah, six months later, she died of a broken heart. And I'm like, ah, oh, god damn it. I'm like, you have one literal child and one also child of the same age. They're, they're like six at this point. <laughs> and you're going to tell me that uh, you just fe feel so sad because you lost the man you love, even though you have your, you know, kids who you usually love more and depend on your very existence. I'm like, couldn't you have killed her off with, you know, a disease or something else? Obviously, they're in poorer conditions now. You can just have her go to a fever. That's a lot easier than stating that she was, she was sad. sad. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I know you had to kill her off. She's not there. <laughs> just do it better I think the weirdest moment is where Sophia is about to leave the ship and then makes out with Klaus for a bit I'm like <laughs> okay that did catch me off guard I didn't think too much of it but it definitely caught me off guard I, I could see one of those I could see her you know because obviously she's head over heels for Alex uh but it's one of those doomed romances and she has to go back and uh, be mature and try to help the people so she can't live the life she wants. And she's looking for a little bit of, you know, a last bit of warmth, perhaps. Uh, and comfort mm -hmm. before. But the presentation of that scene was a little off. And I'm also thinking she's a lot older than she is. Uh, I think when you read through the wiki or the source books of it, you find out that lots of these people who seem like their 20s or 30s are in fact 19. And you're like, oh, Sophie was 19, huh? I'm not buying it, but okay. <laughs> Klaus is 15, she's 19. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, obviously pulling your hair up and wearing glasses uh, is the, the ultimate in maturity. She was definitely a 40-year-old librarian most of the time. <laughs> and then when she lets her hair down, she's a 19-year-old hottie. That's, that's how it works. So yeah, that was a weird moment. 
I liked a number of the, the character relationships. I, I liked, you, you mentioned him early on, I liked Mullen in general because it was an interesting through line to have a secondary character who just sort of meets the uh, the main two on a ship while they're delivering something. They run across him later in a place. He's just trying to get a job. He ends up on board. But what he's trained for is not a thing they do. So he starts becoming an engineer. But then he feels like he has to go contribute better. So he goes off to be a soldier again. And uh, he, he's, <laughs> he's busy pseudo-confessing to... Uh, Lavi and the Tatiana that is like ah too too much huh <laughs> he takes off. but but he gets a lady in the end a, a dissif lady soldier and Dunya has good character design so that's fine uh, I'll spin back around to that uh, in a second as well but I think in the end my biggest disappointment for a character. Thing. Now, Mullen dying would have been the, the you know the appropriate character arc for him, but apparently he didn't, and that's weird. Uh, and I'm fine with people going through having their moments and then you know getting taken out, even if it's by stray bullets rather than solving some dramatic uh, situation. So there wasn't quite enough casualties in this show. Uh, the the most satisfying going out moment is uh uh alex you know choking delphine to death because i'm like <laughs> it didn't that matter because her ship was about to blow up but man that was such a satisfying moment I i'm not usually a that. big fan of a I... strangling scene <laughs> but i'm like i hate you so much delphine you're so annoying you're, you're every bad uh uh you know villain presentation cackling uncaring blood licking uh entertained by you know every batch of conflict uh talking about using like 10 gallons of premium water that everyone is desperate for to clean off the catfish that you eat i'm like oh my god everything about you is evil <laughs> <laughs> and alex was was taken out of the plot line for much of the end there but he gets to uh he gets to strangle her and go out in style. And that was uh, that was definitely fun. But in connection to that, I thought Dio uh, was interesting. And uh, best boy, Luciola, uh, of course. But Dio had a very weird introduction. And you think he's one of those, you know, enemy pilots who's just ridiculously more powerful than our heroes and will humiliate them for a while and they'll become uh you know one of the big sub bosses to defeat before the end to show that our hero has uh triumphed over uh uh, uh things and his skills have improved and what whatever but in fact dio is kind of a weird chaotic neutral sort of thing because he he shows up and then he's he's fascinated with particular uh, maneuvers that Klaus can do. It's like, oh man, I really love this kid over here. Uh, his technology is obviously better. And then he just hangs around on the Silvana for a while. Uh, he becomes kind of part of the crew. Uh, then he has the, the arc where he's working against the guild because he's afraid of whatever this ceremony is and you see him getting brainwashed by the end. He has a very 
long arc and the most character change, to be sure, out of anyone that, that went through. And then he doesn't really have a moment in the end because he doesn't get to defeat things. He's he's fighting Klaus and then he gets kind of shocked out of the new programming and he's confused and then gets swept off his ship to his doom. A part of me likes that because I like things that don't go the normal expected route. And it felt like a a very weird way to do it. But he also feels like the only character which had changed growth during, <laughs> during the damn show. So if anyone should have had a moment for him to control his life by the end, it was Dio. <laughs> and he doesn't get it. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of sad at the end. If I was rooting for anyone to to pull through this all... And uh, be able to, uh, you know, steer the course. It it ended up being Dio by the end. And sadly, no. I wanted more people to die, though. <laughs> also, were did you have... Uh, were these better NPC weird names like Hurricane Hawk and Fat Chicken and Sunny Boy and Nose Running or, uh, or the Mardok Scramble? crazy ones that are <laughs> names right now but you know who i mean yeah i so think who, i like who had the better I, npc names i think i liked mardok scrambles better uh, definitely more insane yeah i guess one of the last things to go around because i mentioned character design before uh -huh. and uh that's one of the things that I figure is both appealing for the show, and that definitely that's one thing. The character designer for Blue Submarine Number 6 for Last Exile, uh, he was going to be for a Marduk Scramble uh, OVA, but it never happened. Uh, and other things is a uh, an, an artist and designer known as uh, Range Murata. Uh -huh. And do, do you know anything much about him i'm not sure how much you invest in the art of uh anime stuff uh i knew the name before i started last exile but i wasn't overly familiar with his work yeah it it's one of those i feel like he's better known just due to you know the other printed works i think his art style is very distinctive in in ways that few artists are as much especially here because he's he's very much art deco uh he's very much you know kind of the steampunk diesel punk elements in it but uh there's sort of striking clean lines and color but especially in this age the amount of fixating that he does on you know barely pubescent or prepubescent girls probably rubs a, a whole lot of people the wrong way. So uh, I'm not I'm not sure. I, I haven't really heard anything much, and I think a part of that is because you don't, just don't have any modern examples. Uh, he did have a, a recent large uh, art book come out, and since I'm, I keep an eye on the art book scene and pick stuff like that up, that uh, caught my eye. But uh, there's uh, 
that I, I find him very interesting as far as an art stylist goes, but uh, I'm not sure how uh, how how appreciative people are of his choice of subject matter in the community. I think in in Last Exile, it, you know, it's it's excellent overall, and if you've seen some of the pure uh, promo art rather than the anime itself, you know, there's there's a good amount of, of stuff going on, but uh, yeah, it, it it seems like one of those things where it's it's uh, harder to uh, harder to to pick up or, or sort through nowadays, especially as you have uh, places clamping down on on things that are lolly in nature. Did you have anything else that you wanted to bring up about the series? Any other questions or comments? I don't know. I don't. I don't think so offhand. Uh, we can probably pull it at this point. Uh, I think I'd. I might be interested in seeing the director try his hand at uh, something else along the uh, along the lines of a, uh, a war production again. Uh, Back in the day, he did Doom Megalopolis and Tokyo Babylon. Uh, he did the first Full Metal Panic series as well. But, uh, excuse me, lately not quite so much, but it, it seemed like an interesting thing with him paired with Gonzo going through things like Blue Submarine Number 6 and Last Exile. You kind of wonder whether or not they might try something for 2023 and be like, okay, for our 30th anniversary, we'll do <laughs> a new thing. And it does obviously it doesn't have to be Last Exile, though it might make sense if that, you know, made them money. I don't know how well it did. It seems to be known well enough in the community, but I obviously can't have much perspective over uh, how it's uh, appreciated or not in Japan. So, alright, on that note, let's go ahead, let's move along to our second series, which was the series that I recommended to you, Oron High School Host Club. Oron is a favorite of mine. I didn't watch it when it was first airing back in, like, 2005 2006 i want to say but i did pick it up a few a couple of years later and i just really enjoy it it's a show that i go back to every so often uh what were what did you know about oron host club before you started watching it before i recommended it to you well, I knew the, I knew obviously the basics, and I think I'd watched probably the first episode uh, or read the first uh, chapters going in. I knew the setup of it, uh, of uh, Haruhi being, uh, uh, you know, going in, meeting this club, becoming indebted to them, being mistaken for a, uh, uh, for a boy, and then joining their number as a. Uh, ostensibly male host in their host club to work off her debt. And I assumed it was... It seemed from the front of it to be much more of a kind of goofier, slapstickier form of your, uh, you know, much more of a shoujo rom-com than a, a romantic drama 
along the lines of Fruits Basket or an overwrought melodrama the way something like uh, Hana Yuridango might be. Uh, so I, I think I was pretty on target as to what, you know, ultimately it is. Uh, before going in, I just hadn't done it. I, I even have a, a full set of the manga, which I put picked up on a Black Friday deal when it was half off. I just never sat down and actually read it. <laughs> so, uh, so I have that. Now we'll we'll get into that. I I started reading a bit of it, but I I have sort of a when when we get to the point, and I'm gonna talk with you about animated manga uh, uh, expectations uh, about it. We'll we'll go a bit more into the manga detail. But uh, do I need to describe the show before we? Uh, sink into the specifics obviously i just described a bit of it right away yeah i think if you want to if you want to do a very brief story introduction uh we're gonna go into the nitty-gritty and the finer details as we discuss it but if you want to do a brief story introduction i'm going to do the brief proper truthful introduction to the series okay we're on the high school host club is about best girl Renge Hoshakuji and her powerful motor. Does your scene lack flair or an interesting introduction? Are there too few screwball people present in an encounter? Do you require exposition not easily handled in any other fashion? Well then, Renge will ascend her stage using the most powerful of motors to deliver what the audience most craves. That is the core of Oran High School host. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Renge is best Renge is best girl. <laughs> I do. I uh, I certainly appreciate the uh, the comedic returns of certain stuff and she has the she has one of the best uh, character introductions in that it's not serious at all. But it's definitely having a uh, a rollicking good time in how she comes in, and then she's instead of returning from whence she came, she hangs around, and she just interrupts scenes uh, <laughs> to do stuff, and it's great. But uh, okay, the the actual introduction, as we already said, uh, you have a schlubby looking high schooler. Uh, named uh, Haruhi, who's looking for a quiet place to study and uh, finds a music room upstairs in one of the most gigantic schools you're ever going to run across. But this is anime. Gigantic schools are par for the course, especially. (laughs) Uh, Enters the library and is greeted by a bevy of pretty boys waiting for visitors who soon reveal that they are a, uh, a male host club. This room is not uh, there to practice music, though there apparently is a piano. It shows up at some point when they need a piano. The only indication that it's actually a music room. Uh <laughs> It, it is there to uh, become a place for girls to, uh, you know, be waited upon and doted upon and feast upon the, the treats and be 
entertained to, uh, uh, you know, to, I guess, uh, you know, remove their, their cares of the world and, uh, and be uh, treated as the, the queens they are. And uh, this intruder, uh, Haruhi, doesn't really know what to make of this pack of weirdos. They immediately assume that uh, Haruhi is looking for them, because why else would you be there? And obviously <laughs> he's interested in uh, uh, them. And they all get their introductions as to what uh, type of host they are, the different appeals that they have, the, uh, uh, the, the overall charming characters, the, uh, 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 the you know, <laughs> boy Lolita character, the cool one over there, the kind of aloof one over there, the uh, apparently incestuous twins, which, uh, you know, that's that's a big thing uh, for host clubs, apparently. Uh, and while being uh, uh, thrown off by these weirdos, accidentally bub bumps into a table with a Vase, while uh, sadly not a lamp because it's getting lampshaded in the entire scene with a blinking arrow <laughs> to the to the vase. Uh, knocked down, can't be caught, breaks on the ground, revealed that it was going to be sold at auction starting at 8 million yen. And uh, Haruhi is, a, uh, uh, is uh, you know, crestfallen and asks how uh, to pay this kind of thing off. Excuse me, and they decided to make Haruhi their their dog, essentially their their gopher. Uh, but it is soon discovered after removing Haruhi's glasses that the eyes, the eyes, the windows of the soul, reveal Haruhi to be a natural, a, a calming, you know, one hundred and eighty thousand percent empathetic individual. And they immediately uh, perform a, a makeover, and uh, uh, Haruhi then uh, becomes a uh, its own sort of uh, host to join the club, and will pay off by being requested a hundred times. It'll become a thousand times soon enough, because Haruhi is far too good at this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we soon learn the, uh, you know, the ins and outs of the school. The school is revealed to be, uh, you know, a, a hugely rich uh, place for the highest of society. And Haruhi is our intruding commoner sort, uh, who is just, you know, very intelligent and went here for the opportunity uh, which it offers. Uh, uh, and so you get the fish out of water, but then you get the instant jealousy and bullying and other stuff from the uh, princess who is always requesting our host club president, uh, Tamaki, uh, who has decided to take Haruhi under his wing and uh, become Haruhi's papa, uh, teach Haruhi the ropes of all of this. So Haruhi starts learning how to hostesize, and the elements of being a, a natural at this just come about by, you know, simply talking 
with the girls friend it immediately has a number of them uh, uh, instantly falling for the circumstance uh, Haruhi of course has your usual lost my mother 10 years ago uh, you know so Ray's living at home has to uh, do everything around the house cooking and other stuff so Im- immediately enters some kind of a cheat zone to uh, attract the uh, the attention of the uh, girls around who are coming to the host club uh, a number of things right away are uh, revealed where we get our usual look at okay this is a this form of shoujo protagonist is not the you know the scrappy uh, fish out of water do-gooder going to make a, a fuss over everything and uh, become uh, uh, what is it uh, a, a pain spot for other people, thereby making, you know, the richest and hottest guys fall in love with her. This sh- <laughs> this shoujo protagonist is going to be your, uh, you know, your fruits basket sort of being essentially a, a, an element of uh, complete insight and empathy and while sort of a droll sense of... Uh, humor and not wanting to be bothered by people that immediately uh, gains the approval of members of the club and by the end of episode one has won over almost all of them except for uh, Tamaki Uh, but after Tamaki helps uh, Huruhi whose bag has been thrown in the fountain and who goes back to the club room to change walks in uh and sees Haruhi wearing a very uh, a, though, feminine uh, uh, shift and putting on the uh, girls' school uniform, revealing that uh, even though she had been wearing just, you know, some guy's outfit out of not caring earlier in the day, she was, in fact, literally a girl, at which point uh, Tamaki looking at her in girl mode and at her old picture uh does the uh uh the the doki doki and uh, <laughs> by there we uh we discover the uh okay here here is probably going to be the uh the fated couple uh but uh, we we know the elements of hijinks that are going to go and uh, the the weird sorts of comedic uh, conflicts that uh, that we will have. So that uh, that isn't a basic one. That was kind of describing episode one. But hey, <laughs> foundation of the series and the starting relationships. So I right, uh, so with this series, there's a lot to kind of digest and a lot to break down. Um, but I'm curious. Just, you know, baseline, what were some of the elements that you enjoyed about the series and what were some of the elements that just did not hit home with you? Were there any, like, particular episodes that you particularly liked or disliked? Any characters that really stood out as particularly memorable or hateable? Uh, I'm not sure you can hate anyone, that the show isn't literally wanting you to hate i think 
it's kind of a thing that I'm trying to see. Is it product of the times or is it uh, simply the tongue-in-cheek uh, stabbing at the, at the uh, knowing one's fan base in the particular shoujo magazines? I forget which one or on uh, uh, what is it ran in. Yeah, I'd have to look that up. Lala, apparently. Which is not the largest, but is a large one. So not not quite a little bit askew from your normal flower comics setup, I suppose, and that's the the purpose of it. Um but when you <laughs> when they're in episode one, when they're doing this stuff, I'm like, the presentation of honey here, I'm like how is this supposed to be appealing? I can understand, um, you know, people liking their little brothers or enjoying a particular relationship, but Honey is just so, for a third-year high schooler, uh, <laughs> it's just so <laughs> tiny and elementary schooler and being swooned over by high school girls uh, in weird ways, and I, I just am here to eat cake and do stuff. I'm like, this seems like the kind of thing that, you know, probably usually shouldn't be too appealing. And same, <laughs> thing, same thing with Hikaru and Kaoru, who their shtick apparently is being, you know, real gay and incestuous for each other for the entertainment of the ladies. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty, you know, Fujoshi spin over here, but <laughs> again, it's sort of one of the things is like that's that's an odd thing to be one of your staples in your host club. If the host club itself was larger, then uh, maybe you have these askew things, but it's a very tight knit group there, so uh, you get uh, I guess certain staples, but some of them to me feel like a weird thing to be cheerleading as, as part of the group with this particular nature. Uh, now, in the beginning, I was a little bit set to dislike what was going on because it seemed like we were going to get too much of the class mockery. Uh, and, of course, why are we supposed to feel all good about these high society uh, uh, jerks? At least you get the uh, dressing down of Princess Bitchface. Uh, <laughs> one, so we know, okay, these guys have good hearts, even though maybe the purpose of this club is not there. I think, honestly, it's the second episode that uh, sealed it in for me more than the first. Because, I mean, the first, obviously, is your introduction and everything else. But I ended up liking... Uh, crap, it's hard to remember a name. Uh, Conoco a lot. But you got to see in episode two, you have a another character who instead of being, uh, you know, a uh, princess bitch face over there, she's another high society one. And she seems like kind of a flirty uh, one going just hopping around between the hosts. But then, of course, you get the uh, her attachment to actually her uh, childhood fiance who they're drifting apart because he's going to go overseas and he's not saying it to her and she can't say anything to him and then it becomes a job of the host club to bring them together to 
to make girls happy is their, you know, that's their purpose. So it's, it's not just whoever's invited there. It's, it's being, uh, you know, intelligent enough and caring enough to figure out what's going on uh, uh, and be able to bring about a, a, you know, a, a good, you know, a positive solution by the end of it. Uh, even though a lot of it ends up coming through uh, Haruhi at this point, which makes you wonder how effective the club was by themselves prior to this. <laughs> but also, you, you get the thing, and uh, you you get the lampshaded banana peel, which will itself reappear all the time. All, both the lampshading and things like the banana peel is apparently anime-specific stuff, because I don't remember the manga having that in the beginning, and I'm like, they, they kept throwing it in just to be goofy later on. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, instead of being being a queen of the dance that they're having, Kaneko was going to be gifted with a kiss from the president and uh, most valued host, uh, Tamaki, but uh, ends up switching to Haruhi, who... Uh, gets accidentally pushed into her instead of receiving a kiss on the cheek. It becomes the first kiss to bo- for both of them, but it's not played off as a oops uh, uh, thing. Like, Tamaki is overreacting to it, but Haruhi doesn't care. She's just kind of like, ah, okay, well, oh well. Uh, uh, what is it? Kaneko was, was fine with it, so... It's not played off for laughs, and it comes. It seems to be very much in line with the overall tone of it, which is obviously very gender non-conforming uh, as a rule. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I think it's by episode two that I'm like, okay, that that's fine. Uh, but what I wasn't sure is whether or not you could build an actual romance on top of this, because <laughs> I'm like, where where does it turn into an actual serious thing? Maybe kind of, sorta. I don't know how much we want to wander around and begin in the middle of it, because that, of course, leads to some of the stuff that was coming up at the end. Uh, I feel we shouldn't, you know, jump too many uh, uh, levels forward, but uh, it it kind of spins its wheels a bit. And I suppose that's the whole purpose. If you're going to have certain shoujos uh, and certain shonens, you know, the whole point is they're supposed to write themselves out. And especially if you're going to be comedic, you have kind of the same thing. So you, you get glimpses into the more serious sides of the, of characters. I think, only Hikaru and Kaoru, the twins, get anything really in there because they have their wanting to be seen and recognized as individuals. And basically no one can do that except, of course, Haruki, who instantly knows how to tell the two of them apart and always <laughs> favorite game is to screw with people. And it almost feels like at a certain point in time that there could be a uh, Hikaru and the Haruhi thing going on because Kaoru seems to be pushing for it, and uh, Hikari seems to be... You know, this is one of those things where as much as uh, Harem gets used for it, we still will have to do our Harem cast at some point, it doesn't come across like that um, to me unless you actually have 
lots of people showing romantic interest in your protagonist. And other than Tamaki and you can reasonably say uh, Hikaru, while you might say that the rest obviously value and uh, love her as a f valued friend, I don't, I can't detect anything, obviously not from Honey and Mori, so, who are so paired weirdly with each other uh, <laughs> that no one else can come between. Whatever Kaoru has going on seems to be dedicated to trying to help Hikaru mature uh, and help. And uh, until the very end, you get almost nothing from, from Kyoya. Uh, he's, he's a very one note for a long time. He's, he's amusing and I enjoy him and I, I kind of like to turn it at the end, which I guess we'll get to. But uh, it doesn't... It doesn't feel like, I mean, you can have some romance bits. It doesn't feel a whole lot like romance because Haruhi has basically zero interest. And the rest of them are not doing the actually having romantic interest in her uh, other than Tamaki, who is so overboard in it that it's hard to take seriously as well. Uh, so you, the only the only manner in which you get a harem out of it is, you know, the the gender balancing between all of the main character and obviously just constantly surrounded by a bevy of the uh, of the uh, uh, other sort. But it doesn't come across to me as a harem in the way that I think it's better thought about. Yeah, I don't consider this to be too much of a reverse harem because there are only a couple of love interests present throughout the run of the series. I would argue that Kiyoya is the third love interest, which would make this qualify as a harem, um, in my opinion at least. Uh, Kiyoya, the thing is, though, is that his development and interest in Haruhi goes at such a glacial pace that it's really easy to kind of miss it at the end. Uh, but I think that over the course of the series, you can really see the growth of how much he likes and respects Haruhi. Yeah, that's that's where I think because it's subdued, it turns into a a form of respect that he rarely has about anyone. Uh, obviously, does about uh, Tamaki uh, eventually, <laughs> but the so towards the end of this, I I think the anime ends in a, uh, a pretty good hook because. As you're getting towards the end, I'm literally in this can't possibly end have a, you know, an actual romance ending. Uh, I'm trying to remember, was this one of the ones that you said had to be, you know, you wanted the modern redo of it? Yeah, so, I, if I recall correctly, this was one of the ones where I said I really wanted it to be rebooted so that they could do and tell a complete story. And, uh, and that's completely understandable. Although I think the anime ends pretty well because uh, you get some of the feeling, but you get a little bit of, of development, especially out of Kyoya towards the end. And I was thinking, I'm like, oh man, I would actually really like this if it steers away from Tamaki because 
that's the you know the fated encounter and the obvious pairing and i'm like you know what i'd rather have those two uh i'd rather ship haruhi and kyoya at the end uh and the anime you don't have to make any decisions about any of it uh haruhi is acting simply to make sure that tamaki doesn't leave and yes there's some doki doki moments and a great callback to his uh what is it his smoldering wet uh wet look or something yeah something like that him him in the fountain and and them in the river at the end i i appreciated that you don't need anything it's just supposed to be it's just supposed to be okay here is here is something here is a little bit of growth here is some possibilities you can see a decent amount here uh but this is all the story we're going to be able to tell and you'd think this one was popular enough that they would have continued it at some point. Or redone it. Yeah, this series, as far as I recall, correct, if I recall correctly, was massively popular in its time. It was popular in Japan. When it got licensed by Funimation over here, they flew out the entire dub cast to a convention mm-hmm. and revealed them one at a time. And the audience from what I recall, just went absolutely bonkers over this. This was a big deal. Certainly, uh, what is it? Uh, the uh, uh, the con crowd, you almost always have an Oron cast wandering around the con floor, usually an, an entire one, instead of just getting a, a whole pack of people who happen to be wearing, uh, you know, scout uniforms from uh, Attack on Titan, but not really playing characters, just wearing the outfit because it's a uniform. Uh-huh. You have, uh, I mean, I guess you could call it the same thing. They just have to wear the uniform rather than, like, pretend to be honey, which would be hard. You just get a lot of people, but you tend to get a bunch of people who do it with each other. So uh, it's uh, definitely a staple through the years, and I think even even now, though it's hard to remember what conventions were like. 2020 is the end of all things. (laughs) So I'm a little surprised that they never went back to it, even a couple years later. And it and it makes me wonder how the production approached it. Uh, Because one of the things that seems to go on is this one seems to be kind of like um, Orange Road, which we didn't get into the conversation about, but I mentioned that uh, the manga is very different in structure than the anime. Obviously, the character relationships are the same, and each of them will have some characters that don't show up in the other. But the anime kind of takes it and just does, okay, here's this one chapter that was simple over here. Let's build a whole episode and expand it this way. Let's skip to this other chapter uh, or, you know, this arc in the back over here and throw it in there. None of it had to be attached in any kind of continuity. And from what I've been, you know, seeing from the outside, the manga for Oron also doesn't have that because I'm looking at certain things. Well, well, that's not what happened in the show. And that's not what happened in the show. And what, when I was reading the first volume, I'm like, wow, I, I really liked the way that the show expanded and did certain things over here that the manga just blows through. And this scene was definitely tweaked better for the adaptation, which is making me, it's doing a weird thing where it's making me want to be like, well, do I want the whole story or do I actually like the fact that it's not pretending we'll get to an actual 
romantic conclusion. Uh, and do I like the handling of the anime, or do I do I want to just have the overall lots more content of the manga? Uh, I think more more fans of the show who've seen both probably prefer the manga because they get you know everything through it. But uh, I I do assume that as with most things, there's more people who've watched the anime than have watched it and read the manga or only read the manga. Yeah, I mean, even I have to admit that I've never fully completed the manga. I read like 10 volumes out of 18 I, and I just I, never I, finished it. Uh, I, I, I was going to ask you, you usually don't read manga. I was going to ask you if you had read. Uh, what Can you expand on my comments there from from structure? Like, how sort of how much of those 10 volumes is uh, uh, done there and you know are they just kind of hopping around at arbitrary rates are they doing it because it feels like there is anime original stuff as well it's been quite a while since i've read any of the manga so i can't really comment with you know concrete certainty uh i do know the manga has a lot more material in it it goes to a lot of different places that the anime never even touches on one story arc in particular that i recall is them doing a sports festival and kiyoya feeling the need that he has to be the star for some reason i don't recall but yeah there's a lot in the manga that doesn't even get touched on in the anime which i appreciated it's kind of like assassination classroom in that way where the stuff that did get adapted is you know really well done but the manga still has its own original stories that didn't make it into the adaptation that i enjoy reading over that's odd i don't I've been following it because it's in Manga Plus, so I've been doing the re-edition stuff, so I haven't read all of the manga, but I've been reading it from the beginning, and to now I can't remember there being anything, except maybe one, you know, quick side story. I don't remember there being anything that is a uh, extra important stuff in, in the manga that the anime didn't cover. It, it seemed like a fairly straight adaptation to me, and maybe I'm yeah, just not like at the point yet. Like I said, it's been quite a while since I've read it, so or read any part of it, so it might just be my memory failing me, but it, <laughs> I, I can definitely recall at least a couple of extra stories that didn't make it into the anime. That's interesting. Let me, let me wrap back around. I know sometimes we get distracted by the manga stuff, but I, I do so much more manga reading in general. Uh, I've mentioned before that my way of re reappreciating series tends to be like pulling a key episode or a key moment out or, uh, you know, like watching episodes 11 and 12 of Madoka Magica rather than watching all of it. Uh, and for other things, if there's a manga, though, I'll just burn through the manga and I'll reread that a lot because it takes so much less time. <laughs> than watching the anime but i know you rewatch stuff yearly uh it is it simply you know again just the the generic your preference for anime is somewhere in the high 90s uh to to manga generically 
or you'd you'd think that the the ability to pull and reread something much more conveniently would be a way to re-experience the series a lot easier than you know constantly rewatching one every year that happens to have like two or four core uh going through it if you can burn through 10 12 15 volumes it it feels like that would be a uh a, a much easier and quicker and get uh, let you get back to more content it, do you just find it not time saving or it's just the the overall preference or do you like the anime it specifically the the story adaptations for the anime more than manga most of the time uh it depends on the series in oron's case uh, it's a little bit of both. I prefer anime over manga. I prefer having a full presentation of, you know, like, animation and acting and music and all of that. I like having that full, complete package presented to me. Uh, but it's also a matter of reading manga takes me longer because I will focus on little details in the art. I will, uh, it's a little more mentally exhausting for me to read manga as opposed to consuming anime. Consuming anime tends to be a little more passive for me. Reading manga is a much more active for me. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. I, I was going to. I started to laugh at that. I'm like, oh, well, no, there's the one important distinction. Like for anime, of course, for me, it, it has to be active because, you know, subs, no dubs. Uh, you you can obviously uh, do what, uh, what you can normally do with a lot of things where I used to watch shows or more listen to them and vaguely pay attention while playing a morphing. So uh, for shows that are in English, that's the one thing that I... Uh, uh, don't appreciate about uh, subtitles is I literally can't do that <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for anime. Uh, so I guess the amount that I have to pay attention is the same. But yeah, my my reading habits are are much uh, faster, and especially if I'm rereading, uh, the the pace I can pull is uh, is very very speedy. So uh, the the anime I'm limited by by time, although I have done it occasionally when we're when we're trying to move through something, I'll be watching an anime and I'll just be hitting the ten second or thirty second skip <laughs> to be like, okay, I know what this scene is going to be. Click click click. Yeah, click. <laughs> and, go, and go to the next one. I can kind of do that, but that's a weird way to watch it. I'm trying to think that like we we kind of left to the end, and I think. That's a, a bit, uh, you know, emblematic of the the way that the anime is handled. In that, a lot of the episodes, there's not a lot of development that you really go through in the episodes. Here, you get these tiny details that come in, like uh, discovering uh, uh, Haruhi is uh, afraid of uh, thunder, and that will become a recurring thing. You get these elements of uh, drama here and there with the twins and towards the end with, with Kyoya and ending with Tamaki and, and revealing his relationship with his father, uh, Grandma Bitchface. Uh, <coughs> his his uh, exiled mother. Asta exiled. 
Uh, <laughs> so you you get that, but yeah, kind of between episodes. I feel like between the episodes three and twenty, <laughs> they just kind of flow into each other. You have uh, you you don't necessarily have all of the same uh, uh, episode tropey episode requirements, and certainly some characters. Uh, are better than most where they're trying to resolve the problems between them. I think it's a little bit of a problem that my favorite of their handling of other characters from a relationship kind of comes in episode two. Because uh, <laughs> I was looking forward to maybe, you know, other similar development, and you tend to have more of the uh, of the club itself rather than other members of the school. You get the, you know, the kid who learns piano from Tamaki because a girl he likes is leaving. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And uh, I enjoy him a, li a little bit, but that's not, you know, a character I can really invest a whole lot in. Uh, you have some of your completely oddball episodes, which are definitely enjoyable. The, uh, the Haruhi in Wonderland is uh, is a pretty great uh, filler episode, uh, <laughs> but Honey, uh, you know, somehow solving uh, a cavity issue by having it go away, but Honey being angry for having a cavity so he can't eat sweets for a period of time. Uh, the uh, the brother showing up and them getting into you know martial arts ninjutsu uh, combat and a lot of it is pretty goofball and yes that that's certainly fine that's uh that's very much you know the the reason that i love reading through ranma and it's just very it's very much a bubblegum thing but there's a limit to you know how much i value a series like that overall uh in the end i i tend to enjoy it a lot and i know where the I know where the romance is going to end. I mean, it's instantly obvious in a series like Ranma that it will only be Ranma and Akane by the end, which is why all of these claims of harems and other stuff is, is very goofy to me, because I'm like, it's a madcap rom-com, yes, but uh, but there is only Ranma and Akane. Uh, and the rest of it is all just, you know, having fun. Uh, <laughs> and, and I... I'm very entertained by that, and and that's very much in the same school I think that Oran has. You get in Ranma, you'll get these interesting, actual, you know, dramatic, romantic uh, things between he and Akane, and then they go back to square one again, and that's kind of what you get in much of Oran is you get pieces of the of character depth, and then it goes right back to goofball. And uh, and you're just enjoying going through there. They they all go on vacation. They're all going to a mall for the first time. Apparently, makes me really wonder what high society in Japan does because they have no grasp of literally anything. <laughs> they don't know the, uh, what an apartment complex is, what a mall is, what. A... <laughs> Uh, they're fascinated by all of these things, and I'm like, you, you have TVs, right? You do watch, you know what society is like. But uh, it's the usual playing off for that, and and of course, the butt of the joke is usually on them, so uh, the comedy carries forward. And I think a little bit that's why I was like, oh man, it would be great if it actually 
turns out that I'm going wrong and it will be Haruhi and Kyoya by the end. And admittedly, I don't know who it will actually be by the end of the manga. I suspect it can't be an open-ended thing by the end. And it feels like one of those setups where it's 99.998% uh, <laughs> has to be Haruhi and Tamaki. So uh, it's it's the sort of thing that I'm like, I, I, would, I would like a turn in there somewhere to be more interesting. So I got... I got my hopes up, and actually, at the end, I'm, I'm interested in if that could develop. But I have a feeling that in the manga, it really won't, and it'll be one of those things where, similar to how Kaoru is basically sacrificing anything he might feel for Hikaru's sake, it feels kind of like Kyoya's respect for Haruhi and Tamaki would be equal and parallel. Therefore, even if he might have uh, an interest in anything romantic with Haruhi, it would it would be subsumed under uh, his mutual respect for the two of them and the way that they care about each other. And, you know, he's got empires to crush and fortunes to win. So in the end, he's got his own distractions that can... Uh, that can go on. So I'm trying to remember what how he wants to be. Did I a lawyer her? like her mother. Okay, just want just still idolizes her mother and wants to be an attorney. So yeah, I mean, obviously that makes sense. Again, it's a it's a little bit one of those things where it's the convenient one where the child is uh, inspired by a parent being taken too soon and wants to carbon copy. Yeah, uh, maybe Haruhi won't become a. Uh, I'm trying to remember a a fangirl of the Zuka Club of Saint Lobelia's <laughs> Academy. Uh, Lobelia, they, they were, uh, yes, Saint Saint Lobelia, the counterpart to Oran. I was expecting them to show up a little bit more. They only got two, two episodes, I think. Although, was one a two parter? Or am I misremembering? No, they were both single episodes. And we didn't get an actual play episode. We got a fake play episode. But uh, in in that second of... So yeah, it's certainly an enjoyable uh, ride overall. It's not one of those things uh, that will end up being... You know, a, I think I will want to read through the manga and see what actually happens by the end. I think it probably would be good for it to return, although depending on what uh, my impression of the manga is, I might almost think it would be more interesting for it to return and sort of continue in whatever anime original stuff it had been setting up and do do a spin on it as an adaptation rather than doing the uh, Oran high school host club brotherhood route <laughs> but i suspect if you're going to bring back a a classic uh beloved shoujo series like fruits basket and give it the full manga purist treatment yeah you'd have to do the same thing with Boron. so i'm curious what you thought about the representation that this series has because what i mean by that is you can argue that Haruhi was 
a good early example of anime evolving into a character that you could argue is gender fluid at you know the at the most uh or at, i mean at the least excuse me True. uh is is that she's gender fluid and then she has a father who works in a drag club and is a trend and is openly a transvestite uh what did you think of that kind of representation in the series as opposed to like other shows that play up those elements for not very high class laughs well it's it's not like scenes with aranka haruhi's papa aren't played up for uh laughs here and there but uh Indeed, I think it is uh, uh, certainly good steps. I, I appreciate it generally. I kind of assume that's what throws Oran over the edge for a lot of people is, first of all, if you're going to... I don't like using reverse harem. I'd rather everything just be a, a harem. And uh, it's uh, the show is built around it, but most people use it that way. So if you're going to have a reverse harem, if you're going to... Uh, uh, you know, do off-center romance kind of stuff. It's it's good and interesting to have a uh, character spin that isn't, well, you know, she's the uh, ugly girl who was made pretty and then the hot guy found out that she was pretty and now loves her or uh, uh, stuff like that. I, I appreciated... Uh, uh, Haruhi a lot because I almost empathize more with simply being the uncaring sort. Because you can certainly argue, of course, that Haruhi is gender fluid. I almost find it more gender uncaring. Uh, because, you know, she was dressing in the normal uniform and had obviously long hair immediately prior to the show. But it was like, oh, I got bubblegum in my hair, so I cut it off, and I don't don't camp it, because who cares? It's annoying. I need to study uh, uniform. I don't really care. She even has a father who keeps trying to doll her up, because, well, <laughs> Ronk is doing that to himself. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, what is it? But it, it just comes across as a, well, you know, I don't care. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> I, you shouldn't care. <laughs> why care so uh i definitely uh, uh appreciate that uh i think the language used in both the subtitle and the dub form these days is not gonna fly terribly well in the in 2020 use of language uh i listened to one episode in the dub so i'm not sure you know for for ronka and then later for misuzu the the Kuruizawa in barkeepers. Keeper, uh, I don't know how uh, those came uh, came across necessarily, but I, I I think things have changed since, uh, what was it, 06? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but as far as the presentation goes, that's fine. The fact that no one is making a big deal of it is fine. Uh, Tamaki is making a, a kind of a big deal of it for Haruhi because he's smitten and wants 
it to be a, but still it's not like Tamaki is the only way I would be attracted to or care about Haruhi is if she did look like a girl. There's just that element there. And it only intrudes occasionally. So it doesn't even matter. And most of the time, Haruhi is quite uh, appealing in just, you know, big-eyed shoujo heroine in a male uniform mode. So you obviously don't need much to... Uh, you don't have to uh, 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 be constantly going between the uh, fixation on wearing a girl's uniform, having a wig. Uh, though interestingly, again, in that episode number two, you got that contrast back right in the beginning because Haruhi gets to... Uh, play with the other boyfriend or the, the other guy to try to draw him out and uh, be an enabler to the confrontation to bring he and his actual fiance together properly rather than him uh, thinking himself a, a lesser being as it were. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, I think that, you know, very specifically is why Oran will notch up a number of levels for a lot of the fans of of the show, as well as just being, you know, a, a solid and enjoyable series and a comedy is specifically due to uh, uh, Haruhi and the gender presentations in general. And uh, even though this is a comedy, not making that a comic element of it, uh, except, I guess, in uh, Tamaki's fantasies. <laughs> Tamaki's fantasy cam is definitely an, an enjoyable returning gag as well. <laughs> but the more the refreshing part to me, I think, was Haruhi's personality. I don't mean, obviously, her, you know, uh, <laughs> her Toru-like levels of uh, just pure empathy and the insight and the ability to just cut people to the quick and see them for who they are, which is, it, it seems like a very tight uh, uh, bind between the two of them. But in this case, Haruhi is simply, you know, the she's the, the straight man, as it were, <laughs> to use a phrase, uh, in the club and really just hasn't have, doesn't have time for their bullshit a lot. And so all of this stuff is like, oh, man, they're fascinated by coffee or this thing over here and uh, and making a big deal out of all of these things that are just, uh, you know, kind of boring and stuff I have to deal with all day. And they're going about their business. And it's part of the not really seeing it very much as a romance because she simply doesn't have much interest in any of it and not in the oblivious shoujo heroine route which is of course very common <laughs> i mean say chihaya in chihaya fudu which is the staple just utterly blinkered oblivious romantic uh character how do he is simply not interested and and doesn't care and the people the the random stuff going around is just sort of a must be treated with a long-suffering sigh which, uh, in a way, is why I, I would like her to pair off with uh, Kyoya by the end, because it seems like that uh, that's very much a thing he can empathize with, too, while he's busy purchasing hospitals. 
did you have any other comments or or anything in particular that you wanted to bring up about this one? Uh, I'm trying to think. You mentioned music at one point before. I forgot to interrupt at the time because I'm waiting for another series for us to cover on either of our side for me to actually kind of like the music. <laughs> <laughs> Last Exile wasn't that great and Oran isn't that great. If you rewatch something, you're going to... The the music cues will dig in and mean more, but it, it again, it felt kind of very light. It wasn't quite as bad as some of the other ones that we've had before, but I've I've been wanting to feel moved by a soundtrack at some point, and it uh, and it hasn't happened for a while. Uh, I don't recall who the uh, oh what is it who the composers were. Uh, I took a quick look and didn't see anything that was like oh, I think maybe she did Death Note as well, which strikes me as okay. Well. I don't remember enough about the soundtrack to know if it is that. I, I mainly remember the like the openings and endings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't really get into the voice cast. Uh, I did say that I listened to a, a dub episode, or at least enough of one for me to get a feel of the characters. Uh, not a huge fan of, of Tamaki, although I can see where they were trying to go to match the manic fervor of Mamoru Miyano, who does obviously <laughs> yeah. the Japanese boy, who I think is perfect in that role. It, it is uh, uh, built for exactly what he does so well. Uh, but I think uh, Haruhi's voice actress is is done uh, very well. I, th- I think the aim was on target. I'm not quite sure about uh, Honey's but uh or or Maudie's necessarily but uh but on on the whole it was fine and i like Haruhi. but uh i find i find it interesting because we covered yet another series with maya sakamoto who i already gave top honors as an op singer (laughs) (laughs) and uh we have already seen her, you know, she's CL Phantom Hive, she was Hitomi and Escaflone, uh, Akito Soma in the recent Fruits Basket stuff, so Maya Sakamoto shows up. Uh, she's not the, the biggest, the most prolific of voice actresses, but uh, I still definitely enjoy her, and, and she obviously is perfect in, in this particular conveyance of the character, so... I think uh, that was the only thing that I really wanted to to mention about that. Uh, the director did Sailor Moon Stars. Did you know that? I did not know that. <laughs> I couldn't make it to Sailor Moon Stars. Uh, he seems to be involved mostly in recent days in doing all of the Bungo Stray Dog stuff, which, which seems weirdly fitting. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything else about uh, production to uh, to bring up or and go through. Uh, is there? Do you have any final questions for me about Oran? Um. So I mean, it sounds like 
you had, you know, an enjoyable time with it, uh, and you mentioned that you want to read the manga and see where it ends up, are you going to wait until you're done with the manga to decide if you'll ever watch the anime again, or? <laughs> I don't know. Because, yeah, prob- that, that's an interesting question. Probably that will determine what I want to do, because if I find that the manga's handling of it is preferred... And if I want to re-experience the series, I'm just going to reread it. Yeah. Uh, same thing with, you know, Hana Yoridango. I watched the anime back in the day. And other than re-watching it, if it's for a thing, like watching it with someone or forcing you to watch it, which, again, for me, that is that is the like the purest uh, epitome of shoujo <laughs> that I can think of. So, uh but I've read the manga. I've read, in fact, I read the manga through, in fact, so that uh, I could read the uh, the new manga, which was somehow moved into Shonen Jump or one of the uh, alternates, which I found very weird. Same author moved the series from a a shojo title to a to a shonen title. Uh, the second part really wasn't very good. <laughs> but but that's the the kind of thing if if i find that the experience is better in the manga then i'm simply going to reread the manga if i feel like doing it unless i have a reason uh to do it this one i think is slightly more because depending on how the manga does it i might appreciate a number of things that the anime does better in the same way that in volume one i'm liking the way that the anime leads into stuff better than the manga i don't uh-huh. know if that will last throughout uh, the manga will obviously have more, so it might be one of those things where I'm like, okay, I, n- I need to rewatch the the anime or try to pull someone else uh, into the anime as well. This one, by the way, is actually uh, mother approved. Um, I can't. Uh, I've been able to get my mother to watch certain shows since uh 2014 be a very light seasonal uh because i'll just recommend things and uh, uh she started picking a lot of it up i think she fi- i think she finds entertainingly that uh her position as basically almost an 80 year old uh anime fan uh in the same way that I enjoy my upbringing of having gotten to it early enough that my earliest experience was rewatching raw anime over and over and barely even having any translation to work off of, which I found so unique that I think that's why it dug in deep with me for the long run. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but her name is Claudia, so it was interesting that Claudia it was a big thing in Last Exile, but she's very much not a not much of a interest in romance and the younger fair. So more dramas or, or, uh, or stuff. So for instance, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, you know, the, really likes things like Rakugo, uh, the great passage, but enjoys things like run with the wind, which obviously we covered. Uh, and I can get her to watch certain things if they're done well. So ReZero, Bunga Stray Dogs, in fact. Uh, I did not think 
Oran would necessarily stick because she's not really much for the comedy. She'll usually find things too trite or not her style of comedy. Uh, and not really not much of a like high school, middle school romance sort of thing. But uh, mm-hmm. but she actually dug the show. So oh, there you go. Cool. This one this one gets mom props too. So yeah, I'm, I may revisit it. It might be a thing where I'm like, I'll wait to see if it gets the Brotherhood treatment and then see what the modern redoing of it does. It feels inevitable because, again, if you can get something like Ushio and Tora showing up out of nowhere after, I don't know, 18 years or whatever the heck it was, and uh, being like, that doesn't smell like a <laughs> a, a <laughs> gigantic formative thing to, to show up here. There's... Uh, I think there's a lot of room, and it, and it does feel like Oran is a good one. Because it, it's not a huge commit, either. It would be even less than Fruits Basket, or about the same. Do you know how many volumes Fruits Basket is, overall? No, it's the top of my head. Mm, might, might be equal, but it feels like you could do it in four core, so, you know. Uh, it, it feels like an inevitable one, but Obviously, it will just depend on how much time one uh, one is giving towards it. So we'll we'll see. I, I may or may not flip back to this uh, if I can get someone to watch with me. Then then that's the most likely. And I I would certainly push it on other other people who I think might appreciate it in the same way. Is quality, <laughs> but it, but it it doesn't like sit i know for a lot of people this is literal top tier and uh i can't see it getting to i can't see many, many things that are in you know the uh the shonen or, or shoujo camp ending up in my topest of tier so uh i don't know what i'll i've i haven't updated my mal in a while i don't know what i'll actually give it in the end but uh you know it's it is a fun time, and people should definitely uh, watch it if they have not. Very cool. So, all right, let's go ahead. Let's wrap it up at that point. Uh, thank you again, CT, for joining me for this fun discussion. And thank you for being joined by me. And thank you all for listening to us. We always appreciate it. Remember that if you want to hear these podcasts, as soon as they go live, they go live on our Patreon first. That's patreon.com slash otaku review. After that, it goes live on major podcast providers a week later. So like I said, if you want to listen to it right away, listen to it on Patreon. Uh, If you want to support us, please feel free to give us a like, share, and subscribe on social media. Uh, Other than that, have a great night, everybody, and we will return hopefully next month with a new episode, but it might be January. We'll see with the holiday season and all. So, all right, have a good night. Good night, folks.